This is Bob Dickey, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Leap Podcast. My guest today is Grant Webster. He's a fan favorite of this show because he is with us in episode six and delivered amazing content. I know we're going to have a similar experience today. So for those of you who may not remember, Grant Webster is the CEO and founder of Launch Thought and also the co-founder of Zephyrus. Both of these are technology companies. He is a consultant for multiple Silicon Valley tech companies specifically in the blockchain and cryptocurrency space. I'm really looking forward to getting some insight and information from Grant on that specific sector today. Uh, He is also an investor in a multitude of companies, but unknown to many people, he is also a very accomplished gymnast and a Spartan race enthusiast. So let's get started. Grant, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bob. It's uh, really a joy to talk with you always. And the introduction, (laughs) I don't know what to say. I I feel like uh, far less than everything you described. <laughs> well, all, they're all true statements. And so it's, uh, you, you live a very interesting life. I, I tell folks that, you know, um, the, the thing I find with interesting people who are doing interesting things and have um, impressive resumes and backgrounds just tend to be people who continue to lean in whenever there's an opportunity in front of them, uh, continue to be lifelong learners and continue to be looking for ways to provide service to people, make the world a better place and, um, you know, add value. And I I see that in you everywhere you go, everything that you do. uh, And it it leads to one door opening another door and another door opening. And before you know it, you look on paper, you're like, oh my gosh, Take a look at all this stuff that I've had the opportunity to do over the last you know decade, and it uh, it's pretty impressive. But it requires an individual um, to take the leap, right, and to uh, to lean in and 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 to look for ways to be engaged. And so that's you know something that I I, I see in you, and I admire and respect in that. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, you mentioned the Afghanistan activities recently. I think that's an interesting example of that leaning in. Because if you were to ask me, even a month ago, Mm -hmm. if I would be involved or if I even had anything to offer Mm -hmm. in a situation like that, I I would have come up Mm empty-handed. But you have something like that happening in the news. And in this case, I happen to have close friends and people I knew that were deeply involved in the situation. And just by leaning in and being like, wow, what can I do to help what can we do to help connect dots or mm-hmm. figure out a process or build systems? I mean, I don't nothing about Afghanistan or international relations, but by leaning in, you kind of mm-hmm. end up finding yourself in the middle of a situation. I was one little cog, but right. it was extremely meaningful and learned so much and actually was able to meaningfully to contribute to people being rescued, even though, yeah. <laughs> even though I didn't necessarily equip to do so. It right. just took showing up. Right. So let, let, let's uh, talk a little bit about that briefly, because I would imagine there's a lot of people, a lot of Americans who are watching this on the news, and maybe they didn't have a natural outlet to say, oh, I, I want to help out. We're, you know, and so there's a, there's a lot of bystanders um, that maybe wanted to get involved, but like, I don't even know the first thing to do. You're a bystander. You're seeing this happen and play out in the media and the news. But for whatever reason, you also found yourself uh, connected to people who were boots on the ground in Afghanistan, uh, connected through various networks that you're a part of, and the, the call went out. 
and all of a sudden, you know, you're like, okay, I'll answer the call. So it sounds, you were like, how can I help? The very first thing that kind of probably got the, the ball in motion for you was how can I help? And then one thing led to the next kind of unpack that a little bit. Cause I would imagine it's probably a very nebulous early on. And maybe it's like, Oh, it's a phone call or an email, a text message. Oh, I'll connect you with this person or that person. But then it just starts. You like, it's like going it's down snowballs. the rabbit. It snowballs quickly. Or you go down that rabbit trail and before you know it, you're deeply in, you're like, Oh my goodness, how in the world did I get here where I'm talking to you know, congressmen and members of the state department and doing all these types of things. Yeah. I think, I think it's all connects even to entrepreneurship and technology. You have to be willing to wade into ambiguous situations and work to create clarity. And if you can do that in whatever environment you're in, it creates value for the people around you and then it attracts more. So in this case, Really, the first piece that happened in this story mm -hmm. is we have made some friends that live in the same town where we live that he was a translator for mm -hmm. um, U.S. forces in okay. Afghanistan and uh, several years ago got refugee status and came here. And we, um, we just met them by chance. Our families kind of became friends. We, our kids played together at the park. They invited us over to their little apartment and treated us to just unbelievable hospitality. As a refugee here in America mm -hmm. with very little, nothing here. With they're, they're very, yeah, with very little, small apartment. And mm -hmm. it was just, it was such an amazing experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a, I think it was probably five hours. It was a Sunday afternoon and there was just course after course of food. And it was, it was just an amazing hospitable experience. And so when this crisis started up, uh, he texted me, and he had a close family member that was a student at the American University in Kabul, mm -hmm. and it, you know, highly at risk because he was a part of this American institution, mm -hmm. and, and also just his future was dramatically altered by this happening. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, well, I don't, I don't know, I don't know anything. I'm not quite sure how I can help. But I yeah. said, let me ask around. Yeah. And so it is a blessing to be a part of networks like the Christian Economic Forum and, and you know and others where I just started asking people, hey, do you know anybody? And that sort of was the very first thing that set in motion getting connected with people that reached out and wanted to help, and they mm -hmm. connected with the head of a university that. Uh, kind of opened up the process to help them apply. That was just one one piece, and, and right. that, that particular situation hasn't resolved. That was like one step. And then next thing you know, somebody else started having problems, and I was kind of already, I guess maybe my eyes were open that there was yeah. a big need. And you had already you had already connected a couple people, made yeah. a couple phone calls. You're already a little bit down that path, and like, hey, I'll do it for this person. And next thing you know, it just starts continues to snowball. Yeah, it just kept snowballing, and we kept connecting with more people and finding other people that were working on it. And we kind of formed a, a cohort mm -hmm. that was focused on this. We and and because it's a significant humanitarian crisis, I think that opens people up to to sacrifice and mm -hmm. give more time than they normally would, because we've had some incredibly high caliber people with experience in the government, experience in immigration law, experience in military intelligence, and these things mm -hmm. kind of step up and be like, yeah, I'm interested in helping. So next thing you know, we've got this little cell that's kind of 
doing stuff and actually making connections. And uh, I'm the least qualified person in the mix, but all I'm doing is trying to connect the dots between people, which ended up being useful and ended up making a difference. In the, in the midst of that, you raised millions of dollars. And uh, it's really interesting how, because you were sitting there in the middle of it, connecting the dots and bringing, oh, I know this resource, that person comes in, I can, and, and before, like you said, you, you built it, you built a, a network, leveraging a network, right? And I, I love, you know, I've read so many books about the power of networks, um, the power of networks being built in the future and how it, it's changing. Take a look at the networks that have changed the landscape of countries, the landscape of economies. And here you are leveraging a network for something really tangible, um, saving lives. Um, what, what did you learn in that as you were, uh, leveraging a network and leveraging relationships. I would imagine that some of these were people that you already had a pre-established relationship with. You had built trust, right? You had built a relationship. So when you called them up and said, hey, I need some help, or you know, can you help here? They're like, absolutely. But you're probably also getting people that you didn't know, right? Who were just, um, were very um, motivated by the cause. And like, hey, I'll help. So is there anything, any insights that you have as you were leveraging networks, your relationships and new relationships and bringing everybody together to, to do this? I think everything comes back to having at least a good nucleus of relationships. It's really hard. Some of the people that we got connected with, it just kind of blows my mind that mm -hmm. we got connected with some of these leaders. But it's the daisy chain of one trusted person connecting you with another trusted person. And that cuts through all the red tape. And especially in an emergency situation like this, people are a little bit more open, mm -hmm. but even then they're, they're getting hit by all these different angles. And so if a trusted person comes to them and says, hey, mm -hmm. you should talk to this person, then it opens the door. So maintaining some trusted relationships. And I know there's the whole, you know, degrees of separation is so few. It really is amazing. When you start tapping into your network, you can get to almost anybody really fast if there's a good reason and if, if there's a valuable reason right. for you to connect with them. I think another thing is creating like tangible, tangible ways to explain the, the value that you bring. So one of the things we did in this particular instance, which I think I learned in business and entrepreneurship settings, mm -hmm. is if you want to, like showing is better than telling. Mm. If you can show somebody the value that you can create for them or show somebody something that gives you some credibility, it really helps. So one of the things that we started doing is mapping the different players because we realized that so many people were focused on just one piece of the problem and in part our ignorance of not necessarily being people that are regularly rescuing people in other countries or interfacing kind of almost helped us see the big picture so we leveraged that advantage and started mapping the ecosystem and going who are the players here who are um you know, what, what are, what's the process and the steps kind of from an ignorant and big picture perspective, mm -hmm. because we didn't know any better, but that ended up being quite valuable. And we made a flow chart and kind of a map of here's all the different players, all the steps that have to be taken. And when we were talking with heads of huge NGOs and uh, governments, we were mm -hmm. able to show them 
Here's what we're doing. Here's what we're doing. And it immediately created credibility because it showed that we had understood the system and had kind of mapped it out in maybe a way that was even fresh and unique and useful to them mm -hmm. just to even see it. So doing coming with something mm -hmm. to the table really helps. You can't just say, you know, oh, I want to I want to pick your brain or we're working on this and I kind of just want to sync up with you, especially in an emergency situation like this in Afghanistan, nobody's got time. Everybody's completely inundated. I mean, it's literally, I've never before been in a situation where lives were on the line and you felt that mm -hmm. pressure, but it translates outside of that too. I mean, every busy executive's got millions of things coming at them. And if you're just like, hey, I, I wanna talk, yeah. it's, it's not useful. If you can, come to them with something that is of value or you know be be the person that they want to talk to for some reason it makes a huge amount of difference it strikes me that earlier as you were talking you were kind of referencing the speed of trust the trusted relationships that you had with people that you knew and they would open up doors and say hey you need to talk to Grant. I trust him. He, they gave you social credibility and social proof to open up a door, right? So you leverage that speed of trust. With people that you didn't have speed of trust with, they didn't quite know who you were. If you had just walked in into a Zoom call or on a phone call, like, hey, I've got this idea. I kind of want to help. I really don't know what's going on. And it's all nebulous and smoke. They're going to be like, I don't have time for this. But you actually built speed of trust with them instantly because you had done your homework and you had that flow chart, right? I, I love that. It's like it, it, you came prepared. You came with, you know, details and here's what's going on. You showed. You knew what you were doing. You knew what was happening. Here's how we've connected this whole network. Here's or we what's showed going that on. we were working on figuring it out, right? Which is something everybody wanted. It wasn't like we were even presenting ourselves as subject matter expertise. It's just that we were actually taking what was happening and capturing it. Sometimes I think we can overestimate what you have to do to, to create value. Sometimes it's very simple. Mm -hmm. It can be as simple as I just curated these three articles about this, these things. And in this case, we just took all the stuff that was happening and tried to put them in buckets. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's genius it's just right. simple but even that simple thing creates value and shows people that you're serious about figuring it out yeah. there's so many real world examples of that those principles right there helped in a humanitarian effort uh, but those exact same principles and the things that you leveraged will help a person when they're launching a business, building a business, trying to be successful in their career. I mean, just, I, I love the fact you showed up prepared, you did your homework, you, you, you brought value to the table and it instantly gave you credibility when you were sitting down talking with somebody. I can't tell me how many times I've been on a phone call where someone says, hey, can I have just five minutes of your time? I jump on a Zoom call, I've got this idea. They show up completely unprepared. They've got some esoteric idea that's kind of like still floating out in the ether. And it, you, you can tell that they're, uh, somewhat expecting me to be able to connect the dots and and I'm like I don't have time for this if you have a really well thought out plan I can tell you if we're going to do something but I, I don't have time to try to like you know ideate with you on an hour-long zoom call on maybe we'll do this maybe we won't I just so just 
I, I see the the richness of what you did to kind of build all this together and instantly have speed of trust and credibility with those people that you're talking about. Anything else that you learned al- along the way? I imagine there. I mean, you could literally write a book on this entire experience. <laughs> it's. I feel like I need more time to decompress because we're we've still. I mean, this this is being recorded in the midst of what's happening mm-hmm. we're starting to you know emerge from it so it's i think i'm going to be processing it's really a life-changing experience on a number so? of levels well i referenced a moment ago it people's lives were on the line mm-hmm. and we were connecting with operators that were helping guide these people and we were getting intelligence and real-time updates and photos of what these people were experiencing Mm-hmm. are experiencing and that makes it real and it it's honestly because if they don't get out they're get they're, they're being hunted down by the taliban yeah, they're, they're, being, they're people, gonna be killed there were people on the list that were being hunted their homes had already been taken they're, they can't go home mm-hmm. um and so knowing that and looking around my house and uh going and getting a cold LaCroix out of the refrigerator, you know, so it, yeah. it really did. I mean, I've been to third world countries and you have that kind of feeling of just gratefulness for what you have, but also mm-hmm. almost, almost shame at the misuse mm-hmm. of all that you have and just realizing, wow, there are people literally right this moment that I'm connected with that, suffering and struggling mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and so it, it's been an emotional thing to wrestle with and i don't i i have i need to continue wrestling with it right. i don't know what the the end of that or the, all the lessons learned but it's been really emotionally impacting to to deal with a situation like this something else that was obvious to me though is this um the entrepreneur and business angle mm-hmm. actually really really was transferable into this and that was encouraging for me to see that it's like, wow, the stuff, the, the kind of entrepreneur stuff I've spent my life on could be almost plug and play into this. Now I say that. In what respect? Well, I, I'll give you a few examples. Um, but first, I say that where it also need other pieces. You couldn't just take the uh, entrepreneur, throw them in there. Mm-hmm. I would have made a mess of things. It was clear that there needed to be a team and it was so valuable to have people with deep experience in the government because that is an, a different animal mm-hmm. altogether. And I probably would have made it worse and not better. And so, um, so th- it's not- it's But you not, were smart enough as a CEO, as a founder of multiple companies, as a consultant that's worked with companies, you instantly, I, it sounds like you are able to like, I need subject matter experts. I'm going to bring wise counselors, people together to build out this network. I know what I know, but I also know what I don't know. And I'm going to get people to help me navigate the labyrinth of government. Yeah, mostly mostly know that you don't know most of what you need to know. So let's go get people that... Yeah. that so even But even that, I think, is a, a business lesson. Something as you're growing a business, you start realizing, like, I definitely don't have all the answers. And the key is to get people that are more expert than you at something and surround yourself with those people. And so it was neat to see that play out, but also the efficiency that we were talking about. That was Mm -hmm. something else I saw as we were talking to some NGOs and and different groups that I think come from 
not a, a business perspective. I think business gives you this, like you eat what you kill. Mm -hmm. You've kind of got to be fairly efficient or it doesn't work. You don't right. survive long. And in this type of high pressure situation where lives are at stake, that kind of like, we've got to, we've got to do what it takes. If you've felt the pressure of like, we've got to make payroll or we've mm -hmm. got to close this deal or this has to get delivered for this client for us mm -hmm. to keep our work, that same pressure translated into this very well. And we could tell by interacting with other groups that maybe didn't operate with that same kind of pressure on a day-to-day -day basis. You could just kind of tell it's like, these people are operating on a little different cadence mm -hmm. and it's not what we need right now. We need this intensity that can come with actually being responsible with ex the extreme ownership side of, yeah. of owning a business. Would you say, would you um, articulate it as folks that are in deeply involved in bureaucracy, layers of bureaucracy, not making, not accustomed to making decisions quickly in a timely fashion? It's just like, well, I've got it. it w is that part of it? Or is it just people who d d just don't operate with a, the same sense of urgency that like an entrepreneur just like, let's, let's get it done. Like failure is not an option for an entrepreneur, right? You've got to figure out how to get it done every day. Yeah, well, I mean, bureaucracy is certainly part of that, and I'm, I'm, I mean, nobody loves bureaucracy, but through this, I've actually grown an appreciation for it because there's so many issues that are deeply complex that mm -hmm. need lots of people working on it, and you, you generally want it to be like a cautious, maybe slow process, mm -hmm. because if things run fast and slipshod, you can end up way off track. Mm -hmm. So bureaucracy isn't all bad. It can be frustrating to deal with, especially in an emergency situation. I'm talking more about, yeah, people that, I'm thinking of the phrase, you, you kind of eat what you kill. Mm -hmm. If you have people that are disconnected from results and being held accountable to oh, results, yeah. mm -hmm. I think it creates an entirely different attitude and, mm. and just approach or cadence. It's not all bad. Right. Because, but it is different. But it is different. And in an emergency situation, you kind of need to be really focused on results, efficiency, be able to very quickly make judgment calls about what's going to be useful and what's not useful. Mm -hmm. And so it was interesting to rub up against people that weren't used to operating that way. And then you could see the difference between people that were operating that way. Yeah. Wow. I can't wait for you uh, to be able to either write a, a lengthy blog post that will probably turn into a book and kind of share some more of your experiences. Yeah, sorry, you're getting the you're getting the raw. This is me verbally processing oh, that's some of this experience for the yeah. first time. No, it's but but it is exciting to see how it ties ties things together. And I love what you said. It really helps when you lean in to the different opportunities that present themselves. So many things happen the next door opens and you can end up in you know you can end up um from from the you know growing up in kind of rural ohio and michigan to mm -hmm. okay yeah working in silicon valley to helping in afghanistan it does open all kinds of doors just to to show up and be willing to roll up your sleeves and help well you know one of the things that i've enjoyed with this podcast and interviewing the different people that I've had the opportunity to just, you know, ask questions of. And it, it, they're all individuals who have leaned in in life in a different way. 
right? They're, they're all successful in their own right. They, some of are, have been public servants. Most have some type of entrepreneurial experience and background, uh, owners of companies, founders. Um, but the, the, I think a common thread with all of them is that with the very diverse backgrounds, every single person was looking for ways in which they could lean in. And I hear so often young people, right? My, so my daughter is a, a senior at the University of Tennessee. I get the opportunity to go on campus and chat with her friends. And, you know, there's, I, I engage with young people uh, uh, quite frequently. And one of the things that I will hear, uh, you know, a lot of times young people talk, it's like, well, I just, I just, I don't know if I haven't had the opportunity. I don't know if I'm, you know, I, I hope I get an opportunity for this. And there's almost like this, this conversation where they, they see the world through a, lim- a limiting or limited lens where it's like, well, you know, I, I, I'm not connected to this person, or I don't have this connection with that company, or I just, I don't have these opportunities. And I, I, I love your life and the the decisions that you've made and these other individuals have made it's just like you you make your own opportunity you you op- you you open your own doors just by being accessible by building relationships by you know networking with people and you have no idea when that relationship that you made with somebody at a conference three years ago or the the random Sunday afternoon dinner that you had with a refugee here in Knoxville, Tennessee, or, you know, you, you have no idea how those things are going to connect and open up doors of opportunity, but you got to take the initiative to, to constantly be looking and figuring out ways to which you can kind of lean in and provide value. And when you do, it's unbelievable the opportunity that you can kind of create. Right. Absolutely. I, I'm just thinking back about how uh, cold email has been a, a huge thing for me in my life. Really? Explain that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's this idea of I want to get connected with this person and thoughtfully emailing them. And I think the first thing I would say is I always try to approach things from the perspective of friendship and not be transactional. Mm-hmm. So being transactional where you're like, well, I need this thing or I need this connection. It doesn't, it doesn't go far. Mm-hmm. You, people can sniff people that can, out. Yeah. People, you, so you have to genuinely want relationship with people. And yes, maybe there's somebody that if you connect with them, it can lead to great opportunities and you know that, but you have to be willing to approach everybody as I'm willing to be their friend. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to, on a certain level, just help them be be a friend to them mm-hmm. on some some way. And that's where you have to start. So you can't yep. start with just I want something. How do I provide value? How do I how, how do I provide value? And then um, you know study them. I, I've I've some of the best connections I have, and and some of the. Um, best business deals have come from literally cold emailing people and saying, yeah, usually it's not pitching them right out of the gate with what yeah. it, whatever, whatever it is, but it's people you admire, look up to, mm-hmm. you kind of study them. You, you uh, maybe do a little social media stalking to understand what they're into, what, what they ad- admire, what they like. And then you try to engage with them about that. And, it will open up friendships, mm-hmm. which then open up all kinds of other opportunities. And I, I wish I was more 
disciplined or systematic at doing this, but there are people that I admire, and sometimes it'll start with a DM. I've, I've had celebrities, people with huge followings, that I really admired something they've done, and I've sent them messages. Oh, man, I think this is is really admirable what you did. Or I, I um, there's somebody that uh, with a huge following that ran um, a race with their young children. And mm -hmm. I was like, wow, I didn't, I kind of didn't think about my kids being able to run a race, but mm -hmm. it inspired me to actually take my daughter and we did a 5K mm -hmm. race and she loved it. It was an amazing experience. And I sent them a message and sent them a picture because it was a direct inspiration. They wrote me back and I now have a little bit of a relationship with this person. It's, kinda, awesome. it's, pretty, it's, yeah. it's pretty cool. And that type of thing has led to business deals. It's led to friendships. It's led to mentorship from people. Just being willing to reach out cold when you're mm -hmm. talking about, I, I don't have the opportunity. If a leader gets a thoughtful, value-creating DM or email, mm -hmm. almost all of the email you get as a leader is not thoughtful, not, <laughs> not value-creating, not well-written. And if you get one, especially from somebody that's like a young person or you know, somebody that's right. doing something interesting, you take notice. I mean, right. and, and if you send 10... True statement, true statement. If you send 10, no, you're not going to get 10 responses, but you will get a few, and mm -hmm. those few can really turn into something if you yeah. keep doing that. So I, I think you can create your own opportunity through DMs, messages, and see where it takes you. It can, it can be pretty interesting. Young people listening, this is... Words of wisdom from your friend Grant Webster. It is spot on, spot on, absolutely. Well, let's talk. Let's talk um, a little bit about how you have leveraged that and used that. I mean, I, I've watched you. I mean, you and I went to um, CEF in Singapore, and I, I watched you build relationships with people there and engage with people there in Singapore. And then I believe it was the year after which was in uh, San Francisco, right outside uh, Silicon Valley. And um, that, that conference for me was extremely eye-opening as we were talking about um, new technologies, uh, the advancements of technologies. I think that was the first time that we really did a deep dive on uh, Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, how that the, the revolution that was taking over. Boy, if we would have bought... A stack of it back then, that would have been... Well, that's actually when that, I started, when started, started investing, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. So I can't I can't Wish I would have bought more then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you were paying attention. I, I did. I, you know, it got me... It, it turned... The light bulb came on, right? And so I was like, huh, that's interesting. And uh, I started dabbling, right? So dabbled before I kind of like went all in. Um, but I know that th there was a, uh, a key relationship that you built... Um, and, and I'd like to for you to share a little bit of your journey, how you started to, because you've, you've been a technologist. You dropped out of college to start a technology company. You're a consultant. Uh, you and I have worked on multiple projects in the past. Um, I've watched what you've done with Crown and CEF. But that conference there opened up some doors of opportunity where you started to get involved in some new blockchain technology coming out of Silicon Valley. We won't mention companies and names and so forth, but I'd like to hear 
how you started to think and see the world differently, because it leads you up to a very important project today that I want to talk about, your involvement, your co-founder with Zephyrus, and uh, it's a partnership that we have with uh, Bonvera. But I, I'd like to hear a little bit about your journey and what, you know, so what inspired you with all of this blockchain technology and the cryptocurrencies? Well, yeah, there's a lot there. I think that on just a technology basis, it, I think like most people initially, I was skeptical. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people look at this stuff and are like, what is going on? What is this? This seems Hokey, yeah. I was the same way. It's like, come on, what is and, this? And I felt the same. And I, I am a, I'm really interested in technology, but I think I also have a pretty, I'll call it conservative. I grew up in the Midwest. I, I'm kind of interested in basic business best practices, mm-hmm. and you know, a lot of the Silicon Valley stuff was alluring to me. And then when I started interacting with it more. So realizing that there are some incredible success stories, but there's this huge success bias because mm-hmm. you hear about all those and there's, you know, vastly, vastly, vastly more failures mm-hmm. from operating with that kind of mentality. It creates right. huge upside for society, but when you're operating in it, there are all, it's a very risky way to way to think so Mm -hmm. so i'm was maybe more skeptical than some people in the technology space just because it's like what what is this what's going on so i did i studied it and then dabbled a little bit and i pretty quickly started realizing that a lot of what talked about on the surface of blockchain is uh, is kind of noise Mm -hmm. but underneath all that noise there's a lot of signal there's a Mm -hmm. lot of truth there in, in the fact that as an underlying technology, it's pretty pivotal in this way that's similar to how electricity was pivotal, maybe even road systems and other networks that connected. There's been a number of those through history, right? That Technologies that change the economy, right? So yeah. electricity, just like the automobile, there's technological advancements that radically transform the way the world is going to work. Right. Exactly. And it definitely has the ingredients for that. So um, I'll, I'll put a pin in it there and then shift gears to just talk about, uh, yeah, the, some of the relationships. There was, I developed friendships uh, through the you know, CEF conferences mm-hmm. and other places and not transactionally oriented, not looking, but just true friendships. Mm-hmm. Some of these people started working on things that are very, very interesting, groundbreaking technology. And that move that we talked about at the beginning, how can I help? What can I do? It's like mm-hmm. you're, you're talking to somebody and they're describing, this is what I'm working on and these some of the challenges I have. And if you can click your mind into gear of like, okay, well, how, how can I help? What can, what can mm-hmm. I do? And be willing to roll up your sleeves and jump in and actually contribute something. Mm-hmm. Even when it's unclear what the end result will be or... Uh, what the payoff is, mm-hmm. being willing to do it purely out of friendship opened 
huge opportunities to get introduced into the blockchain space, to get to be involved in uh, a blockchain technology company. And you helped them from the ground up. I mean, literally, I remember yeah. you flying out there and you're like, I'm, you know, we're... we're, we're I, I did the full-on Silicon Valley, sleep on a mattress in the living room. Um, it was it was a fun experience yeah. to kind of... <laughs> <laughs> to do and you're piecing all these pieces yeah. together. I remember you and I talking about it, and you're like, hey, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I could tell you were just like passionate and excited about it. It's a startup, and you're literally, and it's a very valuable company that um, are providing a real world utility. And you were literally there on the ground floor watching and helping. Yeah, it was it was amazing to do. I mean, it was classic Silicon Valley in the sense of kind of working out of the garage, living room. Mm -hmm guys staying up all night you know, going mm -hmm. out so that was a valuable experience that stemmed from just relationship if right. it wasn't a relationship a friendship right wouldn't have been been there in the room and then it was an amazing experience to raise uh, more than 10 million dollars mm -hmm. of um of capital and uh, go you know go into building the technology from really from the get-go and, and trying to connect the dots and create something that was an idea and move it into a product that people could use and narrowing down that funnel of like, we can do so many things. What are, you know, how, how do we specialize? How do we get more mm -hmm. specific and getting the first users and looking for product market fit? Yeah. Looking yeah. for, yeah. Do, going through that whole journey uh, with a blockchain based technology, it was, it was, really interesting. It was also extra challenging. I'd worked on a lot of technology products mm -hmm. that were not in the blockchain cutting edge space. And there were advantages and disadvantages to, to being in that kind of cutting edge blockchain space. An advantage is when you're on the cutting edge, there is a little bit more grace or allowance for like, we don't know where this is going to take. It seems like it's going to show promise. And the people you're working with are potential clients. They kind of know that mm -hmm. too. And so you have this latitude that you might not have otherwise when you're on the cutting edge of mm -hmm. something. If you're in a more established space that has defined practices. You the, the, the gold standard's already established. People know what to expect. You're like, you better measure up. This is what we want. This is the results that we expect. Exactly. So being on the cutting edge of something can open up doors with huge players. I mean, Fortune 500 companies or major universities, they're willing to talk because it's like, this is a cutting edge thing and we're willing to, to give, mm -hmm. I mean, it might be a moonshot, but we're willing to give a cutting edge thing a little bit mm -hmm. of time a day to, right. to see if it, so you have this latitude operating in that space and that can open up opportunities by, by kind of putting yourself out there on the bleeding edge of what's possible or happening. So that's an advantage. The disadvantage is that you're not clear what success looks like. You're not even sure what's technologically possible. You're, 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 you're having to figure that out as you go. And there's not necessarily a model you can point to to be like, we're gonna do it exactly mm -hmm. that way, or we know this works. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty that you have to wrestle with. Wow. So that, that was, I would say, one of the things that was unique to me, because a lot of the apps and products that I'd worked on had been more straightforward. I mean, it's, you know, it's a, it's a basic app that does basic things and yeah. can, we can do that. 
We need. I, I want to push this button and order a pizza or whatever. Exactly. The case may yeah. Be. We, yeah. We've worked on you know pizza systems. We worked on e-commerce sites. We worked on you know just apps that help track inventory. I mean, all those things are you know technical, but you can figure them out. And there's a process. This is brand new, and you're not sure what's there even. Mm -hmm. So you have to really wrestle a lot of unknowns to the ground. And I think uh, shifting back to just blockchain in general, a lot of the criticism that people have of different aspects of the blockchain, um, I don't, tell me when, if we're getting too technical or something, okay. but like gas fees and uh, things being too slow or mm -hmm. using too much energy, all these things that if you were to Google what blockchain problems or something, mm -hmm. it's like yeah. you see you see these issues, they are extremely reminiscent of the early days of the internet and mm -hmm. the same type of problems that people faced then. I was listening to an interview with Mark Cuban talking mm -hmm. about uh, some of his experience, both building internet companies in the 1990s when that was the very earliest days to now being involved in blockchain. He was talking about what was his first uh, startup, the audio. Um, it was a it was an audio streaming yeah, for sports, like for yeah. basketball, baseball, something. Else. Yeah, it was an audio streaming service, and at the time, the user I think experience. Yahoo bought it, right? Yes. Yeah. The the at the time, it was really clunky. I mean, there was to to use it. Even connecting to the internet was difficult at the time. Mm -hmm. You had to have a dial-up modem, and you had to disconnect your phone line. You couldn't receive any phone calls. Plug it in and yeah. and um, dial into the internet, and it was very slow, clunky graphical interface. There wasn't much bandwidth, so streaming audio was choppy. It was arguably far lower quality than what was available on radio. Mm -hmm with the one added benefit that it was on demand. Mm -hmm. um, and so the use case of saying like, should we be even doing this? It's not even as good as the existing technology. There was a lot of that argument being made that it's like, why should we be even investing this? It's not nearly as good as what we currently have. We've got radio, radio is yeah. fine. Exactly, but people like Mark saw that they, they, they played it out in their mind to the end. Mm -hmm. And they knew that the problems of bandwidth were solvable. They knew that the having to disconnect your phone line and plug in the internet line were solvable issues. And so they stayed the course and they mm -hmm. invested in building these technologies and they, um, they came out on the other side mm -hmm. really, obviously really successful. They were right. Yeah. And you have to, in, in that, he probably had a number of customers and people who were probably buying that service, utilizing that service, be like, test it once, be like, oh, this thing stinks, right? Probably got a couple nasty emails. I don't like this, want to refund. Probably more than a couple, yeah. Right? And, but what does he do? He does not allow any of that to detract him from the ultimate vision of playing it out. I, I call it game theory. I, mean, I know you and I have talked about game theory, but you know, it's one of my favorite things to do in any type of scenario is what, what's the game, game theory this all the way out to the, the, to the end. And uh, he's like, hey, all right, there's going to be some people who aren't going to buy the service. Great. See you later. I know what I'm going to do and how this, the game is going to end. He stays true to himself and 
uh, made a fortune in the process and, you know, helped, you know, radically change a number of different industries. One of the things I try to think about when I'm looking at technology and going mm -hmm. like, is this really going to work or not? is to try to take it back to like fundamentally what is this doing? Mm -hmm. And then is that fundamental thing already something that's useful and valuable? Providing value to yeah. society. So, so like uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who's the author, author of Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, and several other books, which he's one of my favorite thinkers. And I think it's Anti-Fragile. Mm -hmm. He talks about the Lindy effect. And the Lindy effect is, my paraphrased version is, the longer something has existed, the more likely it is to continue to exist. And he applies this model to all kinds of things. I mean, you've got technology like the wheel. It's been around for a long time. It's gonna continue being. So, mm. so anything you look at, if you look back, the further back it has been in history, the longer it will probably continue to be useful to us. It even holds true of like book um, book titles or play. He, he In the book, he um, I think he does like Broadway plays. And mm -hmm. like, like the longer a play has been uh, on, the longer it's likely to continue to go. The longer a book stayed in the top 100 books, the longer it's likely to continue. It's this self reigns There's something true. There's something mm -hmm. that resonates. There's something that really is working there. And so if you look at something that's happening, like blockchain or the internet, and you can trace it back to what is this fundamentally doing? Is this fundamentally doing something useful? And in the case of the internet, it's like, well, it's making information more accessible. Mm-hmm which fundamentally has been valuable all through history. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you can, you can trace that back to where it used to be. There was only, you know, in people's heads and then they started writing things down and then, but they could only write it down on papyrus or rocks or things or, you know, cave walls. And it's progressively got more available. Mm -hmm. You started having libraries, um, universities, and it, it just, that same trend, you can kind of connect the internet to that trend of information being more available and trace it back thousands of years and say, okay, this, this is on the winning side yeah. of, of a trend that has been around right. for a very, very long time. It's just the latest permutation of that. Mm -hmm. So when you look at blockchain, you go, okay, what are the, what are the fundamental acts, aspects of what this is doing? And is it valuable? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing blockchain is, is it's a ledger. It is a way of recording information. That's useful. That's mm -hmm. been around for a really long, long time. time. <laughs> that's 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 been around, you know. Um, and it's and is it an improvement? Is mm -hmm. are we improving the ledger, or can we improve the ledger in this direction? Well, one improvement the blockchain presents is that the ledger is distributed. So. If we go back to... Another word would be decentralized. Yes, de decentralized. So if we were to go back to a ledger that you know, my grandfather had for keeping track of his books, it was literally a physical ledger that... if There's one of them. There's one. In his office. And, and if something were to happen to his office... All that information is completely destroyed, never, never to be had again. Copying that ledger was very time consuming, took a huge amount of man hours, mm -hmm. 
actual man hours to to make that happen. So we've we've progressed from there to like okay databases, and then you know databases moved from being a server in the closet to being in the cloud, which is much safer. And now we're moving for some things beyond the cloud into a decentralized, distributed way of holding information, which is more secure. Is uh, I think it eventually can be faster because you're not going on a hub and spoke where it's all going back to a, a central spot. Right now, it's it's maybe not necessarily faster, but it feels like one of those solvable problems where if you just picture like, okay, this information is everywhere instead of in one spot. If it's everywhere, eventually we'll be able to get to it faster mm -hmm. because it's right here instead right. of in a server that could be a thousand miles away that right. I'm having to get. So it's like you can trace this thread of like, this is a progression of something that has been around for a very, very long time that's really useful. It's decentralized. An another aspect, and sorry for interrupting here, but I wanna hear your uh, thoughts on this, but it seems like there's also a move for things to be transparent. We want transparency in government. We want transparency in business. Transparency, when you shine light on things, people say, oh, that's a good thing. We like that. And then the blockchain is actually providing a great deal of transparency. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's something else you can trace back and say that, um, you know, the, the truth shall set you free. Mm -hmm. Something that we've recognized in society is is true. And it's why information, the more information is available, it helps people make better decisions. And it's why um, unjust measures and lies are so destructive. Mm -hmm. The more information is available and transparent, I think that's another super trend that you can look at over the course of history and say, yes, the more information has been available, via um, you know, public records, good record keeping that the Romans and um, maybe uh, some of the uh, Asian mm -hmm. societies developed, um, that's very useful. Then um, the more information is able to be verified is also useful because somebody can say anything they want, a politician or mm -hmm. <laughs> marketing, but if you're able to actually go compare it to to the record mm -hmm. of it, you can verify and it holds everyone accountable, which, mm -hmm. which makes things better. Now, we'll see how far this goes. I think that there's implications that I'm, I'm not sure I'm entirely excited about or know how to wrestle with because I think it's headed in the direction of very little privacy, uh, where all information is going to be available in the blockchain. And that has that's never been the case mm -hmm. in all of human history. There's always been private information. And so is there, is there a point where this becomes too far and it becomes unuseful mm -hmm. and actually goes against the trend? Because I do think that privacy is a trend mm -hmm. that has been always been there. And this has, uh, on one side, it has the opportunity to make a lot of information available and transparent. The other side, double-edged sword, if it, all information is available, is that actually a good thing? Will, right. will we like that? I don't have a good answer. It's an interesting debate. You know, with everything, there's, you know, the, the, pro, the pros and cons. And one of the things that I've been monitoring are various thought leaders in not only in politics, but also just kind of uh, 
popular culture that are now starting to debate this very topic. And uh, the, the theory um, that has been, you know, kind of, or not, not theory, but the, the idea that has been, you know, bantered back and forth on is that there, we're living in a generation now that, and with cancel culture, we're, we're watching people who are been given a job promotion, have been hired for companies, um, conservative, liberal, doesn't matter what side of the spectrum that you're on, uh, publicly traded companies, whatever, and then all of a sudden somebody will dig up in their past something that they said. Now, they, they, there's been people who have been hired for jobs. They're in their 50s, right? And somebody dug up something that they said when they were in college as some, you know, you know, immature 18-year-old kid, it's like, guess what? You're fired. That job offer's been rescinded. You're canceled. And there's uh, thought leaders on both sides of the political spectrum, um, on both sides of the aisle, right? They're saying, this, this is not good, right? We've, there's been a lot of time where we naturally believe that in, the, uh, in a human's life, we're hoping that people progress, they learn, they get better, they develop, they mature. People make mistakes, right? And now all of a sudden, they're sitting there talking to their kids and saying, be careful what you put on Twitter, be careful what you put on Facebook, be careful of anything, because this is becoming a, re a public record, and it's, ne it's something you can never expunge. It's, it's always with you, right? And so we've never, like the generation that's growing up right now, there's never been a generation in human history that literally every mistake that they've ever made is going to be with them forever. I mean, we, you, you're used to be like high school kids. You'd be, oh, well, did you, this that group of you know individuals? They did something stupid. Okay, they got their their, their hands slapped. They they're young, immature kids. They learn their lesson and they, they move on. Now there's no moving on. That is with that's a scarlet letter you wear for the rest of your life. So it's it is. I, I am a uh, I'm, I love technology. I love the advancements of technology. Um, but when it starts to you know, move into some of these privacy concerns and you're seeing what's happening, that does raise an alarm bell for me. I'm like, uh, you know, I, I know I'm having to, you know, mentor and coach my, my children differently because of the stuff that's going on. So, it, it, yeah, there's the and pros and the, cons. The financial side of it is going to be tied into this as well, where every transaction is going to be immutably mm -hmm. logged. And so money forever will be traceable you know what you what you bought what you, it's 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 really that side of this it's developing there's part of me that feels like um things that are unhealthy tend to actually have like self-defeating uh mechanisms so i'm hopeful that society will reach a little bit of an equilibrium of mm -hmm. some kind and we'll figure out ways to deal with these privacy concerns but i don't know what they are yet and they're major things that we need to be uh working on i think though that that people do gravitate towards is truth or things that things that make sense and some of the some of the ridiculous canceling i'm i am hopeful it's a real problem that i'm mm. concerned about but i'm also hopeful that it will sort itself out mm -hmm. uh, stat i heard just the other day that was really interesting to me is about the Super Bowl compared to like the Grammys, if you were to go back to like 1970 and look at like viewership of both, mm -hmm. the Super Bowl has continually gotten bigger and bigger, more and more viewers uh, watching it. Whereas uh, award ceremonies, 
like the Grammys have mm -hmm. gotten less and less popular to the point now, uh, just in the past year or two, it's like their relevance and even getting the kind of coverage that they get is they're ir irrelevant. Yeah, they're, they're becoming irrelevant. Well, why is that? One of the reasons is because one, the, the athletic events are made up of merit-based actors that uh, people, I think, intrinsically, deep down inside, ad can admire or look up to because they know on that sports team, the, the owner's son has never just sort of wiggled his way onto an NFL team. To be the QB. To, yeah. You know, it's, it's, it, it just has never happened because it's, it's, it doesn't work. It fundamentally doesn't make sense. Mm. Um, whereas on the other side of some of these award ceremonies, you have a lot of nonsense. You have a lot of these selections that it's some type of political cronyism, some type of let's try to make sure everybody's getting equal coverage when the outcome might not be the same. And so I think people might not consciously realize it, but it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So the societal attention that's given to those things is diminishing over time mm -hmm. just naturally. It's just like people it's not relevant like it was. Mm -hmm. Whereas this other thing feels more relevant because you're like, well, at least this is real. Yeah. So if we look at things like the these privacy concerns, short term, I'm very concerned about what's going on. Long term, I, I do think, I'm optimistic that it will gravitate towards a better a better place that over, you know, if we were to look 50 years from now, there could be some real pain that happened in, in the time span, but I think it will gravitate towards something that is truer and makes sense because society gravitates away from things that don't make sense over the long run. Yeah, that's very well said. I uh, appreciate you highlighting that. I'm going to do a little bit of research on that uh, that merit base because I think you, I'd, I'd love to know what article or where you heard that being discussed because that that is very very interesting. Well, Grant, that is extremely exciting information that you're sharing with us, and I'd, lo I'd love for you to just expand on it a little more. Talk about. I mean, there's a blockchain revolution taking place right now, and it's not just in cryptocurrencies and forms of payment, but actual real world use utilities. There's companies that are being formed right now that are actually going um, up against, you know, big tech industry players or, or um, big Goliaths in the space that have the potential with a new technology to dislodge them, to dislocate them, to take market share from them, right? So, I mean, there's companies right now that are going up against uh, AWS, Amazon Web Services, and say, hey, why don't you um, do your file sharing in a decentralized location where all of this isn't controlled by Amazon. That's just one example. But can you list, you know, three or four uh, companies that you know of? And actually, I won't t I tell you to name the, the company that you worked with, but the company that you worked with was specifically in one of these sectors that was helping to, dis you know, going after and dislodging a major market player. Yeah, oh, I think the first thing you have to start with is that blockchain technology, think of it as, it's a technology. Think of it like, like electricity or uh, databases or something else that almost any business can use. Mm -hmm. That's one of the frames that I put on this whole space. Right now, there's a lot of companies starting up that are specifically like the blockchain version of this or the blockchain version of that. But remember that this is 
uh, a way of thinking and a technology that I think eventually will underpin almost everything, just in the same way that cloud technology kind of took over from having, you, you had server in your closet, then you had server co-located someplace else, and then you had cloud. Mm -hmm. Well, blockchain is kind of moving into that stream where it's starting to be an underlying thing that are used by a lot of uh, a lot of applications. So that's just one. It's going to seep into everything. Is it similar to like when um, I remember the at the very beginning of you know the internet and then web pages and then it was, the e-commerce boom was just starting. Every single business had a, a basically a brick and mortar store, and then all of a sudden it was like, man, if you want to be in business, you had better have an e-commerce portal. You better be able to sell and have you know uh, some type of e-commerce presence. And over time, many of those companies, the e-commerce presence was their main presence. They didn't even have a brick and mortar presence. And then, so do you see this as blockchain technology, like like the moving to like Web three point where it like every single company is going to be leveraging it in some way, shape, or form. It's the underpinnings of, of the future. Is yeah, that I, I see it as kind of a, a building block for the future. And it's okay. not the right thing for every application, but for a, for a lot, it makes sense. So to okay. get more specific, there are companies that, uh, here's an interesting one. So is a little bit techy, but okay. there's uh, something called source code control that is incredibly important for Every software company out there in the world needs and uses soft, uh, source code control. When you're building your websites, you're building applications, yep. all that code, thousands, millions of lines of code. You've got to store it. You've got to store it, and you need uh, a check-in and check-out system when you have different developers working on it. You need backups of your code. So this, uh, underneath almost everything you touch every day, somewhere back there in the tech stack that's mm -hmm. powering the, the app that you used a few minutes ago to the website is a source code control platform. So very pivotal. It's kind of like uh, in big manufacturing settings, uh, I remember like Ford or General Motors plants where you would have to go to a tool room to check out a tool to use on those lines and you got to check that tool back in. Everything's right. So it's source code. It's a, it, it's a tool. You got to check it in, check it out, making sure it's, it's controlled, right? Yes. So this is just, I think this is a beautiful example of how this plays out. Right now, the biggest source code control application that's out there that's used by millions of businesses is called GitHub. It's owned by Microsoft. It was it was bought by Microsoft for billion bil dollars. Billion, yeah, billions of dollars. Very powerful application. There's a lot of people that are becoming uncomfortable with the idea that Microsoft has the keys to a certain extent to all of their software, all of their code. Not just all of theirs, but like basically every, all the code on the planet, it, like yes. everything. Exactly. Yeah, everything. Everything is held in the source code control GitHub platform. Mm -hmm. So you have uh, a blockchain. Remember, there's several, but there's a, a prominent one that is creating a blockchain-based source code control platform. And so the thing that you have to have like a mental shift about this is right now you have a major corporation that it does have shareholders, but it's still very centralized control, uh, which has its own its own ends, its own purposes, its own profit as the center of what it's about. Mm -hmm. 
in the blockchain world, you're building this on top of, uh, you know, like Ethereum in, mm -hmm. in this case. Ethereum is a platform you can build uh, other applications off of. So if you own Ethereum, it's a little bit like owning part of the corporation that these things are being built on top of. So as these tools become more useful, that's in theory, what would increase the value of Ethereum as you're, as you're holding it. Mm -hmm. So this is just, this uh, Radical is the name of this platform, is one that I just love the example of because it just goes right at the heart of you have this big, big corporation that holds all of the source code in the world in their GitHub platform. Total control, total power, and you've got new new age or what we say a new generation of programmers engineers thought leaders saying maybe we ought to be putting our source code maybe someplace we shouldn't else trust yeah maybe we shouldn't trust this corporation with all of our our work maybe we should have it decentralized where we have the power we have the control it's shared by openly and transparently right yes through a whole, yeah. a whole different the, the ownership different. structure is i mean your code is can be secured still, in still it secured. but secured in it but the ownership structure of it is much more in your control versus a corporation so that's one example and there's other examples that are you know going up against places AWS. like AWS. To talk about this yeah well yeah uh, compute power mm -hmm. People don't realize how much runs on top of Amazon. I mean, we think of Amazon day to day when we get packages or whatnot, but that's it, really not their main business. It's not. If you were to look at their uh, stock prospectus, an enormous amount of their revenue and most of their profit comes from Amazon Compute Services. So is that the same as uh, Amazon Web Services, AWS? Yeah, or yeah. Amazon. Sorry, I probably said it wrong. Amazon Web Services, okay. um, which includes many. Yeah, thank you. Sure. Has has many uh, different components to it, but they basically took their computer infrastructure and said, "Let's start licensing this out on to, to people. They can rent the Everybody. infrastructure we've built." Well, now years later. Virtually all major corporations, most startups, the the federal government has, you know, multi, multi-billion dollar yearly contract with them for running uh, a lot of their computer infrastructure. So, so all these websites are hosted in their cloud on their servers and their farms under their control. Hmm. Let me... Let me uh, ask you a question. Have we seen a time and a place where there are people who might have a different political view, a different point of view, they want to say something, uh, and all of a sudden they're canceled? Uh, we, have we seen that on Facebook? I mean, obviously, a rhetorical question. Yes, yeah, it's, right? it's happened, and it's interesting. It happens more than what you'd think. AWS actually has pulled um, services from a variety of just, just say we're not going to host you. Boom, you're locked out. Yeah. So now there's a movement afoot, a revolution afoot, if you will. Yeah. For of, of of people saying, I want to have my website. My it, it could be a blog. It could be a communications portal. It could be a, a company's e-commerce website. I don't want to have it controlled by a company like Amazon that could try to cancel me because I may have a different political view or I want to say something differently. I want it, my website in a decentralized platform that I can't be canceled, right? Yeah, exactly. So there's a few companies working on decentralized. You've got Hypernet, you've got Golem. Those are kind of mm -hmm. two prominent ones that are focused on um, this decentralized compute where instead of it being a major corporation with 
lots of servers. They're going to individual people and you know renting compute power and and the and without blockchain technology, that's not possible. Is Filecoin in that same game, or is there a, is that a little bit different? I would well, it is similar. I would put Filecoin more up against like Dropbox okay. or Box.net okay. or something. You know, it's it's a file storage, but it's okay. the same exact idea where you're taking something that used to be centralized in a major mm-hmm. corporation and saying, can we spread this out uh, across uh, a broad network? and have the compensation structure be where the people that are actually providing the service are getting the value of providing the service versus all of it accruing mm-hmm. up into the corporation. So for those who are listening at home, you're like, I'm, I, I'm sort of following this, but I, I want to connect the dots a little bit further where, where it was all centralized, let's say in, this, in the context of Amazon Web Services, they have a huge you know, server farm, right? It's a massive warehouses where just stacked from floor to ceiling with computers and uh, air conditioning and every, all the data is stored there, right? In the, in the context of some of these other companies that are building it on the blockchain, they're storing it decentralized, right? So you, they, they're breaking up this data and they're sending it out. It could be stored on your uh, a person's. If you if you're part of this network, it could be you're providing storage maybe on your home desktop or your laptop, maybe even your phone, right? Mm-hmm. Any of these type. And, and so this information is being stored in millions of locations around the world. And when you access it, you're bringing it all back together for that one end user, right? But it's almost impossible once you put it there. It's impossible to say, oh, we're going to shut it down. Like congratulations, you're going to have to like shut down a million, yeah, two million, a billion. It's, it's, it's a hydra with unlimited heads, you know. Yeah. It's it's like it's it's impossible. So you come to my home and you take my laptop computer in my home, but there's a million other devices out there that have the, these bits and bytes stored there. It's, it, there's no way to stop it, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's early days for this stuff. So right now, the experience is a little clunky. Maybe the speed isn't what it needs to be. But we can go back to what we were talking about, how the early days of the internet was the same way. If you wanted to stream audio like Mark Cuban mm-hmm. was doing, it was really tedious, tiresome. You, uh, it, it was, But they were making advancements so fast. And yes. dialing in, and now look at it. I mean, I, my son and I can be traveling down I seventy five, and he's watching an ESPN, you know, baseball or basketball game on his phone, and it's the same quality as if we were sitting at home looking at it on a cable television. Exactly. Yeah. It, the the future is much more decentralized than what it is now. The you know all the pieces and parts aren't there to have it be a totally fluid experience, but it's definitely where the puck is going. So when, to sum this all up, this isn't a, in your analysis as you study this, as you see this, this isn't a flash in the pan. It's not like the, the, the latest fashion craze that's going to be here today, gone tomorrow. But this, what we're doing, blockchain technology, but specifically helium, has got long legs. Yeah, I mean, the concept, I mean, I think helium as a token, as a company is, is you know, really solid, but you can't know specifically what project or what mm-hmm. token is going to succeed. But I think if you were to look at what the trend line is, and we, like we were talking about earlier in this conversation, how what's something that's been true for a really long time, it will continue to be true into the future. I think you can look at this idea of um, decentralization being safer and being uh, in many ways more efficient 
in not in all contexts, but in many, I think you're going to see that continue continuing down the path, and it's going to be a long-term trend that people and projects move to this decentralized way of thinking. The thing that excites me about it is, I mean, it is truly a revolution that is unfolding right in front of us. And there's, old, I, I love seeing old structures that have been kind of uh, protected by the status quo and there hasn't been a whole lot of change and so forth around it. Maybe there's inefficiencies built into old systems and then new technologies that are coming up and saying, hey, we're gonna remove these inefficiencies. We're gonna lower the cost. We're gonna provide better service. We're gonna remove friction. And there's just so much happening around us where you're seeing that. And just and when I, the thing I love about it is for people who have their eyes open and like we talked about earlier, are willing to lean in and maybe um, you know work a little bit, take some risks. There's just a wealth of opportunity, an amazing amount of opportunity to be had in all, in all whether it's opportunities in investing, opportunities in uh, leveraging new technologies. Just, to me, that is super exciting. I would rather be a part or living in a time when that's happening than a time where everything's just eh, the status quo. There's there's really no energy, there's no hope, there's no advancement when everything is just kind of like stuck in the mud and there, there's no movement or progress forward, right? Yeah, and that's that's definitely what this is doing. It is, it is making major centralized corporations that are have a way of doing things look at this and go, wow, <laughs> this is coming, this is changing the way things are operating. It's happening. Um, Let's pivot into Helium, right? So he Helium is a blockchain that's providing real-world value. Uh, tell me how you kind of started to discover this. And uh, I know you and I have had conversations on this where you, you really like the aspect of a um, – right now it's proof of coverage, proof of network, but it's providing a real-world utility, Um and, you know, so tell me a little bit about your, your background and getting yeah. involved in this space. Well, so uh, I think one th aspect of blockchain we didn't touch on is the whole idea of proof of work mm -hmm. is being a really foundational piece of what blockchain technology is. And that's basically the, the idea that you're able to prove you have a, a certificate that something happened. We can verify this happened. And if once again, if you look back in history, that's super useful. That's, mm -hmm. that's been valuable in society always mm -hmm. when you can verify something. So the way that happens on things like Bitcoin mm -hmm. is you have these math problems that are getting solved. I'm gonna like oversimplify yeah. it. Oh, this is um, great. Partly because I don't know if I could, I, I don't understand it well enough myself to explain it in the, the level of detail that some some people can, but you you have these math problems that are getting solved. And when, when it's solved, it issues uh, a token, a certificate saying this happened, this math problem was solved. And a criticism that some people have of some blockchains is that what real world value does solving a math problem have? Now, you could get into some arguments saying that there actually is value in Bitcoin. And I don't think we're going to get into that. We're not going to get into that right now. But suffice it to say, that's something that some people point at is like, well, what, what good is it if this computer solves a math problem? Why should that excite me? 
Well, once again, it's the concept. It's the, it's the idea of saying this thing happened. We're minting a certificate, a token saying this took place. And it's the fact that that happened is distributed across a, a decentralized network in a ledger. This happened. So Helium is one of the best examples that I think exist right now while we're recording it mm -hmm. of the blockchain playing out in kind of a real world scenario where it's like, okay, I can see this being useful. What Helium is doing is it's a, it's a wireless technology or it's being built around a wireless technology um, that is uh, basically creating a mesh network that will allow internet of things devices. So think of all the sensors. I mean, my iWatch, your, your, your watch, your refrigerator, your stove, all these things are starting to get sensors in them that are connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. Also, there's a lot of, uh, not necessarily consumer, but like manufacturing sensors in plants, sensors alongside roads to measure traffic, mm -hmm. uh, sensors in water, sensor environmental sensors that are tracking different things. All these things are cropping up. Well, the problem I've is- I've got rain sensors on my, my irrigation system at my yes. home. I've got you know video sensors on my front door monitoring traffic coming into and from my house, right? Just, it's literally ubiquitous, it, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the, I don't have the chart in front of me, so I'm, it's, I'm not gonna say the number, but I mean, it's literally billions of 30 something billion connected devices, I think. it's amazing and there's more and more i mean there's going to be an unbelievable number of sensors or devices that i heard what somebody call it the pre-cambian explosion over the next couple of years right it's like just like billions of these things just like taking off right exactly the challenge is right now our cellular and wireless network technology isn't really optimized for receiving these kind of data that these sensors are putting out from a cellular technology standpoint, let's say you want to collect environmental data uh, and feed it into a system. Well, the only way you can really do that is to get an expensive, you know, wireless card, pay, you know, 50 plus dollars a month just for that card to connect to feed this one. And so if you're thinking about like billions of sensors or having sensors all over, it just, it doesn't, the math doesn't make sense. And the technology, even the, the, the way that the radio waves for these, um, the frequencies that these operate on, it's not ideal for the sort of sensor-based data packets that are getting sent. So there's different people who have been working on radio frequencies and antennas that are much more aligned with these kinds of receiving the data from these sensors that are starting to proliferate everywhere. And the problem is there's not coverage. So it would be great if your devices, your lawn sensor that was detecting how much rain, if it could like easily connect in to a network and feed that data into a cloud in a secure way that lets the other systems that need to know about it uh, tap into that data. But there's not a good omnipresent network that's available for it. The only real semi-omnipresent network we have is uh, cellular technology, which is expensive and not ideally suited for these things. So uh, we've got these new long-range Wi-Fi technology that's been underdeveloped, it's already in use. Mm -hmm. So what Helium, the company Helium is doing is trying to solve the problem of how do we create ubiquitous coverage 
just like cell phones have, of this long fi uh, wireless network. And mm -hmm. so what they've done is created an incentive system to encourage people to set up hotspots that can provide this kind of wireless coverage that we know is gonna be needed in the future. And instead of being big cell phone towers, it's actually much better to have lots of uh, little hotspots, mm -hmm. like Wi-Fi routers that have quite a bit more distance, like about 200 times the distance of a normal Wi-Fi router, mm -hmm. uh, providing this wireless connectivity coverage for Internet of Things devices. And so Helium, um, has set up a protocol for managing these these hotspots mm -hmm. and also rewarding them. They've created a blockchain-based system that is a ledger that identifies where is coverage happening, mm -hmm. uh, who is providing that coverage, and a mechanism for rewarding them with a token when they've successfully provided coverage and then who's feeding data through this network and metering it and tracking it all in a blockchain-based decentralized ledger. So the wireless technology is being pioneered by all kinds of, um, I mean, the, the biggest of the big mm -hmm. technology, I mean, Samsung and all these people have got this kind of long-fi technology they're starting to bake in. What Helium is doing is saying, we wanna make this long fi technology ubiquitous. And we're gonna do that by creating an incentive system with the blockchain. So they've got these hotspots that uh, people can place in their home that will, or on on your business or mm -hmm. you know anywhere. And as long as it has a little bit of electricity, it only uses about the amount of light bulb mm -hmm. uses and a stable internet connection. It provides this long fi coverage where Devices can feed uh, data into it, and it goes into the. I mean, it can get tapped into by other platforms and systems. I'll, I'll take a breath. I'll let you. That's perfect. No. So I've I've been told that the average cost to run one of those hotspots would be anywhere from thirteen to twenty dollars a year, depending on the type of device that you have. Provides localized coverage depending on you know how high this device is or the antenna is on your home or business you know can uh, determine the range or the radius that it's providing coverage in a local area um, and it, it, it's also a the, like a dual-sided marketplace right now right so helium is building out wanting to have these devices deployed everywhere all over North America you know every continent to build out this network that companies will use. At the same time, you've got the Helium company that is, if I'm not mistaken, just a couple weeks ago, there's $111 million they raised from some of the top venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, Benchmark Capital, Andreessen Horowitz. I mean, those guys have been the unicorn mentors, if you will. I mean, they, they've been uh, they've backed some of the, the biggest technology companies that have come out of Silicon Valley. So for me, that's a signal. When I see really um, stout and reputable VCs, venture capital firms, getting behind this, I'm like, okay, that's a good signal. And so they're raising capital, and they're also working with companies, like you said, Samsung, Lime Scooter, Salesforce, to put this technology in place for big companies to be utilizing this as a platform for, for data to be flowing through. 
correct? Yeah, exactly. And so the idea is, is you know, all Internet of Things will need to tap into some type of Internet, some type of first a connection that can kind of go that last mile, last few feet to where your sensor out there can connect to something and then that something can feed it into the Internet so that information is useful. So you can pull up your lawn thing and your on your phone and know what's happening with mm-hmm. it, or you can reserve a scooter. Or I just saw today uh, a uh, a monitor for people with diabetes that is a continuous tracking monitor, and it is going to use this same helium technology to feed alerts back into the system if there's uh, uh, if the blood sugar drops oh, wow. too low. So, I mean, it's like, it's really lots of practical. Everything from healthcare devices to, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, so a lot of stuff's being um, built on top of this and will be built on top of this protocol in the future. Hot, uh, Helium, um, one of the ways they're building out their network, you could, you could do this a few ways. You could, you know, spend probably billions of dollars to mm. put up equipment all over the place to provide this coverage. They're going with a decentralized approach saying, we think this is a stronger, better way to build the network. And we're going to incentivize everyday people, businesses to install one of these routers in their, um, you know, in their home. Mm-hmm. Or, and it's going to provide this connectivity for about, 350 meters or mm-hmm. a quarter of a mile-ish, you know, uh, is how much space these can um, go. They can go a lot further with other antennas and things, but that's the that's their working model. And the way they're incentivizing people is as you provide coverage and uh, useful coverage, not just any coverage, but useful coverage, it takes that as a proof of work mm-hmm. and it pays you for that coverage in the form of a helium token. And so those helium tokens, I mean, they, they do fluctuate some in value. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's over the past month, it went from $16 a token to 20 I think 26. 20, 20, 20, 20, yeah, it's had a pretty big run up here. And some of that's because of... Uh, uh, having where they mm-hmm. reduce the supply of their tokens. But one of the things I like about Helium is they've, they're actually keeping a really tight control on their supply. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at a lot of blockchain projects, the, if you divide the number of available tokens, it's, you know, like billions and billions of tokens. And you can pretty just do the math and go, well, these tokens, if there's, you know, 10 billion tokens, they're never going to be worth anything, yeah. anything much just because if we were to make them each worth any, you know, a hundred dollars a piece, all of a sudden it's worth more than Apple and this yeah. thing's not going to be worth more, <laughs> you know, so that's one way to look at these things. So Helium is doing a really good job of, of holding on to their supply and minting the tokens, not when a math problem is solved, but when you've provided useful coverage and that's tracked by your hotspot has to witness with other hotspots and they validate one another and say, okay, yes, this hotspot is there. It's, it's, it's working, uh, it's, it's, working. Got it's, it. it's got power, it's got internet, it's functioning correctly. And when a group of these witness one another, a token is generated and pays out. So right now, the Helium network is incentivizing people to get these hotspots and put them 
put them in your home. And so that's where with Zephyrus, we're really excited about the opportunity to get a lot of these hotspots out and create a lot of coverage. Mm -hmm. And it can be a fantastic uh, revenue stream for people as they get the hotspots placed. And it will provide, I think, a technology that's going to be with us going forward for a long time. Well, that's where Bonvera comes in because you know, I contacted you and said, hey, we've got a uh, globally decentralized uh, workforce, if you will, or in independent 1099 entrepreneurs all across the country. I've, I'm already in relationship with these people, or Bonvera is. We're, we have contracts with them. We know who they are. We have a pre-existing relationship. And there's an art and a science to deploying these hotspots. You don't just plug it in like a TV and a router and away it goes, but there's you there you've got to do it the right way. So there's education and training that goes along with this to make sure that that antenna is the right spot that it's, you know, deployed uh, correctly. And so this is where I was like, Hey, this seems like a, it could be a perfect marriage where Bonvera could be a preferred distribution partner. And we have, so we've got a partnership with Zephyrus. We've got a partnership with a couple other companies who are doing this. We're like, Hey, utilize our entrepreneurs all across the country to place these devices in their homes so it can be a win-win. We'll take care of the deployment. We'll take care of the teaching and the education, you know, some of the install, but it could be a, a great win-win. And so I'm certainly excited about this and I appreciate you uh, partnering with us. It's, it's a really exciting opportunity. I think that one of the things we've seen in this space is a lot of private equity companies and big players are like, oh, let's, they're kind of going with this carpet bombing, like let's get units out there and they had all kinds of people signing up for them, but there's uh, the the problem of one, they're not providing support, and two, they don't have an existing relationship with these people, and so the they're they're not taking the action. So because you have a network of entrepreneurs, that, like we were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. it's been a theme. It's like that taking action. Yeah. You've got a group of people that are already proven that they can take action and 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 do what it takes to get results. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what this needs. And, the, and the, the thing about this is is it's it's not hard. You have to be willing to fuss with it a mm -hmm. little bit at the front end to really figure out what's the right placement, what's the right side of my house to have this on, mm -hmm. where should the antenna be facing to get the best coverage. Um, but the beautiful thing is, is there's incentive. Mm -hmm. If you get it right, if you're witnessing other hotspots, your reward will be greater. Mm -hmm. If you just plug it in and leave it in your closet, the reward will be minimal to none. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but once it's set up, it's, it, I mean, all it needs is a little bit of electricity and an internet connection. Once, once you've got it, it really is an incredible passive income generating opportunity, but it takes that kind of initial thoughtfulness of going, okay, I'm going to set this up in the right spot. And well, similar to the conversation that you were having at the very beginning when you were talking about leaning in and, you know, asking the right questions, um, it, when you showed up at some of these meetings and you had already done your homework and you had that org chart already, you know, planned out, you brought value to the table. W what are some of the things that you can, you, you would be encouraging people who want to have one of these in their home that want to deploy it? Uh, I, I'm, I'm experiencing uh, phone calls and emails from two different types of people. One individual 
who is taking it upon themselves to already do some learning, to do some due diligence, to get out there. I mean, this is, we're talking open source. We're talking about transparency. There's so much information out there for people to be able to read and research and understand. And getting to know and learn a little bit about this. And then there's another person who was just like, oh, I just literally doing no work. Um, they have not done any type of due diligence. They want to plug it in. They're and just like, well, I, okay, I wanted to plug this thing into my house yesterday and, you know, start providing coverage and earning tokens. And I'm like, so what type of advice would you give people? Now, I know you're going to be coming to a, a big training event that we're having here uh, in, a, in a few weeks and going to be doing a deep dive training and, and, and so forth. But for those people who are listening right now, what are some of the recommendations that you would give them? The other thing I would add is we are building a member area for the people that are hosting these hotspots that will have a lot of education resources. But um, aside from that, there's a huge amount of information available online. I mean, YouTube is full of videos of people setting them up. There's lots of blog posts explaining uh, how to do it. I think it's one of those things where if you commit to spending a few hours of understanding the technology and understanding antennas, understanding some of the some of the lingo, what type of antenna, um, you know, there's different levels of antennas that have different shapes of how they spread their signals. There's mm -hmm. some that spread it in like a narrow beam and it can go a long distance, but not wide. Mm -hmm. There's other ones that just, it's like an orb. It shoots it out from all sides, but it can't go very far. Mm -hmm. And so if you do a little bit of research about the types of antennas and, and think about what makes sense for your area, you know, if you live in a urban area, if you live in a Kind of a, one of the challenges we have here in Knoxville is just so many hills. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes this it, is line of sight. You need line of sight. Yeah, you really need line of sight because there's, there's there's so much terrain. Mm -hmm. It makes it difficult to deploy around hills because radio signals don't like hills very much. So um, so kind of study your area. Try to just um, if you invest a few hours, yeah. you will have what it takes to know how to set this up. And it's also there's some. Um, tactics and, and strategy involved in placing it. One of the things that we're doing, I think we're helping some value we're creating mm -hmm. for people is right now there's a lot of people that are getting, I've talked to the suppliers of some mm -hmm. of these units. There's a lot of people that have these units that are literally making nothing. And there's two reasons for that. One is because they didn't set it up the right way. Mm -hmm. And two, they're not in a spot yet that is providing coverage. So if your unit isn't able to witness other units effectively, you're not gonna earn anything. So one of the things that we're able to do with this nationwide network of people that Bonvera has is start strategically rolling it out and building out hubs and then adding more people onto those hubs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's gonna increase earnings for everybody in the network. It's it's It really is not a... Um, the more people there are, the better it is. Mm -hmm. It's it's uh, it's additive, not subtractive at this stage. In the future, I think it's gonna shift from, right now, proof of coverage is the most valuable thing. So just providing coverage is what Helium is incentivizing people to do. And over the next, uh, you know, I'm just a guessing, couple a couple of years, I think that it'll shift to being more oriented around traffic through mm -hmm. there. So actual so internet of things, through. yeah, the data throughput. Okay. So that it will kind of shift from right now, coverage is really valuable. Over time, it'll move to data throughput being valuable. 
So you could, you could uh, have a device right now that is doing very, very well. And then when this, the pendulum shifts in the compensation, um, it, if you're not in an area where there's a lot of Internet of Things devices connecting and data flowing through, maybe that device, would go, the earnings might go down a little bit and vice versa. You could be in a spot right now where you're not earning a lot, but all of a sudden you find yourself at a major intersection or at a location where there's just a ton of data flowing through. And all of a sudden that is the new gold mine. So the pendulum is going to, to shift. Yeah, it's going to it's going to shift over time. I mean, I heard one extreme example of somebody in a rural area that had quite a bit of land and they set up hot spots and they, they have to be an appropriate distance apart. That's mm -hmm. another thing people need to know. And this is one of the biggest reasons when we turn a location down, there's typically Two, two reasons a location doesn't get approved in our system. One is that it's not close enough to another hotspot to provide uh, coverage. If, mm -hmm. you're not if, you're not, if you can't verify the status of another device, it's not gonna earn anything. Mm -hmm. The other reason is it's too close. You need to be at least 350 meters or so apart, or otherwise you're, you're not provi you're providing overlapping coverage, which mm -hmm. isn't useful to the network. And so that really hampers the earning potential. So if you are um, far enough apart, you're fine. If you're too far, it's not good. Mm -hmm. But I heard about somebody recently that had quite a bit of land and they were able to position a number of units all on their land of an appropriate different uh, distance apart from one another and create their own hub, which is incredible. These units are making thousands of dollars a month, right? At wow. this time, the, the, cause it's proof of, cause it's providing a lot of coverage and it's all owned, but it's in the middle of nowhere. So, uh, when the pendulum shifts to being more about providing data coverage, a setup like that will be a lot less valuable mm -hmm. than a setup that is in a you know more urban area or in mm -hmm. a setting where there's sensors. Yeah. So it's it's going to even out. But I feel like Helium's done a good job of managing the supply. They're not just minting tokens willy nilly to you know generate money. It's it's all based on a real world reason. So. It's possible that somebody could submit an address for consideration. They get turned down right now. And I've actually gotten some emails and phone calls from people like, oh, I guess it means I'll never get one. I'm like, no, that's not the case. You're, that address got turned down right now. But as this network is being built out, and there's a, uh, it's a land grab, right? And there's going to be the goal is to have ubiquitous coverage from coast to coast, which means an address that might get turned down today could actually be a really good address in 30 days. It just takes some time. So all of these addresses, like, so when someone submits an address to you, it's going in a database that you guys are, you know, consistently going back and looking at, and you might like in 30 days or 60 days be like that address now is prime location. We need to put a unit right there. So people shouldn't be upset or disappointed if they get turned down. It's just a temporary until the, yeah, as it, exactly. I mean, the goal is from sea to shining sea and, mm -hmm. and beyond. Yeah, but we're having to be judicious in where we place them. Uh, if we if we place a unit where it's not useful now, um, it's not going to help anybody because it's just going to be a, a dead zone, a, mm -hmm. a, a, a piece of... A it's piece a paperweight. Of, uh, yeah, it's paperweight. It's not doing anything. So we're trying to put them where they're actually going to earn. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly evaluating if there are places that we've already looked at that are now in a good position 
to do it. We're also experimenting with multi-pack installations. Okay. So if there are people that have you know multiple addresses or can get a group of people together in an area where it makes sense and, and we can deploy all of them at once, that's another tactic we're looking at that we feel is, is pretty innovative because you can take an area that's a total dead zone and build a network overnight versus just going one or two, you know one unit at a time so that's another another strategy and you're going to be uh, teaching on that here in a few weeks at the national training event that you're put, you're yes. coming in and teaching on okay perfect grant i want to know your thoughts on this the entire ecosystem right there's so many different projects so many different cryptocurrencies blockchain projects how do you determine which one you think is going to be extremely valuable and which one is going to be one of these you, you hear about them like a, it's a flash in the pan some guy launches some you know coin and you know it, it pumps for like a, a couple of weeks and then it just goes to nothing right and it's just it's gone right and, and people want to make sure that they're protected from you know those flash in the pans versus where is their real value in so, a project that has long legs where it's going to provide incredible value and be like the next amazon or the next google how, as you look at the ecosystem how do you analyze all of that yeah, well, one thing is, is if anybody really knew the answer, clearly they could rule the world. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah true. Well, you, can, you, you can see how much value I place in your, your opinion, but I agree. There's, nobody knows everything. But there's two things, I think, that really go into to weighing whether something's got real value. And one is, does it create some kind of real world value. Mm -hmm. And you can look at that a few ways. Um, you've got platforms uh, like we were discussing that have the source code control, mm -hmm. Radical. Let's well, doing something useful. There's already millions of customers that are paying for source code control and they're providing it in a way that's better. Mm -hmm. It's decentralized. It's more secure. It's not centralized in a corporation that could, you know, possibly steal their intellectual property. Mm -hmm. So it's creating actual real world value. Okay. So that's, that's one thing. Um, helium is a great example of, I think, real world value of it's providing coverage, like physical, real. And huge coverage. companies are paying for that service exactly. and more are signing up every day. Exactly. So you can see that it's creating real world value. The second thing I think is network effect. And network effect I mean, is a big complicated topic, but it means that it's reached a little bit of a critical mass of utility and adoption, and that the more people use it, the more useful it is. And it's kind of created this virtuous cycle where uh, that's happening. Now, can that be hype? Yes. But if you couple both network effect with real world utility, I think you have something valuable. So in the case- It's where, where Bitcoin is kind of there, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. Bitcoin is, uh, is really interesting. I mean, people, there's people that are absolute maximalists about yeah. Bitcoin thinking that it's going to replace gold entirely. I don't know if I'm qualified to talk about that, but it 
it has got that network effect where it has such wide adoption that it is really difficult to disrupt. I mean, you have countries that have tried to outlaw it only to realize weeks later mm -hmm. that it's literally impossible. They can't, there's nothing that they could do to stop it. So that's pretty interesting when you have a sovereign country. I mean, India is an example of this, where they literally just outlawed it. And then within weeks, no, had, had to walk it back because it, it's not possible to stop that train. And the flip side of the the, the spectrum, you've got countries that are now making it legal yes, tender. Exactly. They're like, that's going to be you know our legal tender. <laughs> so so it's pretty obvious that there's yeah. some strong network effect there. And then in, in platforms like Helium, where it's got this real world value, it's mm -hmm. it's uh, providing these radio frequencies and coverage that. Mm -hmm. Companies are starting to build products around and using, and they've created an incentive system that makes sense. And so people are starting to put more hotspots out. And the more hotspots there are, the more people that could benefit from having a hotspot because they can connect to more hotspots and earn more money. So it creates this, this virtuous reinforcement cycle. And once that snowball sort of starts and gets big enough, if it has real value behind it, I think that it has got the potential for some staying power. Now, there's other things that you know, have gotten really popular that maybe don't have that second pillar of real-world value, and I don't know if they'll be able to maintain or if they'll just be a flash in the pan. But I think if you have both of those things... That's a good, it's strong got, it's, signal. It's a, it's a strong signal. Wow. Okay. Well, awesome. Thank you. Um, well, anything else? I mean, it's one of the questions I hear from time to time, people will ask, well, are there, are there other competitors in this space that could, you know, could um, be competition for, uh, for helium? I, I know one competitor, Amazon Sidewalk, they're doing it completely different. They're not incentivizing people. Actually, I have a number of different Amazon devices in my house, and I was actually uh, perturbed with them that they automatically opted me in to give my signal to neighbors and so forth. They're not compensating me. So I had to go in, I turned that service off on all of my Amazon devices. Uh, so the, the question would be, you know, tell me a little bit about, you know, competitors. Do you see these as a threat for the system? And what, what's, what's the, the, the runway? Do you feel that this isn't something um, that you're investing in because it's got the next six months or a year? I mean, you see this as a, a long-term play that once this network is built, it's going to be there providing useful coverage for a very long time, right? Yeah. I think you have to separate the underlying long-fi technology. Mm -hmm for a moment from some of the companies that might be using it, that I think is very stable. It's like a, a protocol standard mm -hmm. that's being adopted by device manufacturers the world over. The question is, is they need a network that's available to them. So that's where Helium is maybe the most significant player at the, at the mm -hmm. moment. There can be others. And I think there will always be competition, but the, the Helium, um, the Helium decentralized methodology and their reward system is unparalleled at this point. Nobody else is offering the same kind of network effect, the same kind of um, compensation structure, the same type of technology partnerships that they have. So at the moment, they're way ahead of the pack. Uh, I think players like Amazon, uh, they'll always be there and they probably will be a significant mm -hmm. player in this space. Um, I think that the tide is moving more in the direction where people are interested in privacy. People are interested in uh, taking back their data. If if you're instead of you being the product, mm -hmm. you get compensated for that. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think that the trend line is against Amazon and some of the big tech giants in terms of 
providing, you know, I agree. They'll always be there. I, I don't think that we can compete with that, but I think that, I think that the headwinds are against them mm-hmm. on this. Any other insights that you'd want to share with uh, listeners or anything that one I, thing I I'm going to mention a, a challenge that everyone in this space is facing is the chip shortage. Oh yeah. So, I mean, this is in the news. It's, it's a matter of national security. It's a matter that's impacting the automotive industry significantly and many other industries, including this one. So one of the challenges right now is the supply of hotspots is just severely restricted mm-hmm. because chips, uh, there's fairly sophisticated chips that are put inside of these things, the types of chips that wasn't possible to put in a little device even just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And the supply crimp Mm -hmm. is enormous and it's creating huge order backlogs. And so even acquiring these devices has been time consuming, expensive. And one of the values we're trying to bring to the table is we've developed good relationships with some manufacturers and, and have access to some level of supply. So that's uh, that's a value to this community of where mm-hmm. we're actually able to get our hands on some devices and we're providing support and uh, education in terms of how to get them deployed well so you can, you can earn the most. But I think that's gonna be something that's frustrating to us and everyone else is just, we can't get a hold of devices as fast as we would want them because mm-hmm. of the, the supply chain shortage. Well, something that we're going to have to navigate, um, as you said, in, in all walks of life. I went to a, a car dealership uh, not too long ago, and there literally was like made two new cars on the lot and nothing else. And the guy's like, we can't get vehicles. There's there's literally lots up in Kentucky with tens of thousands of vehicles just parked, right, where there's you're waiting for, you know, chips to get put into them before they – you know, are able to be sold, but it, it is it, very interesting times. But look, I, I know that you have uh, a very busy schedule ahead of you. Uh, you've invested a lot of time this afternoon here in, in the uh, the studio with me. It's all, people made always, it all the way to this point, they've been patient. They have. They've been very patient, but I want to be respectful of your time. I'm super excited about the partnership. I just want to say thank you for uh, the partnership. I've always enjoyed partnering with you in projects in the past. Uh, really excited about this particular partnership. Uh, I know folks in Bonvera are as well. Uh, thank you for sharing words of wisdom. And I eh, didn't even think that we would be diving into some of those Afghanistan stories. And no, things, I didn't know was, we would be either. I know. It was, it was hot off the press and things that you you, you and I have been talking about. It. I've been kind of living vicariously through you as I've been you know, watching and listening to the things that you're doing. And uh, really appreciative of the way that you lean in, not only in business matters, but also take your God-given talents and lean in in other areas to make a difference in the world, whether it's uh, a, a difference here in our community, uh, differences in the businesses that you are running and uh, investing in. And uh, and it's kind of interesting that you had the opportunity to lean in and, and help in a humanitarian effort and literally saved the lives of thousands of people in Afghanistan through your efforts and connecting the dots. And so just want to say um, thank you for all that. Thank you for your friendship and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Today's episode was engineered and produced by Jeremy Going. Special thanks to our guest, Grant Webster, for being on our show once again. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify. 
If you liked our show, please recommend it to a friend and give us a review. That is always very helpful. Thank you for listening to Taking the Leap podcast. We will be back later with more interviews from thought leaders, business owners, entrepreneurs, movers and shakers taking big leaps in the world and doing interesting things, fostering change, and making the world a better place. 